My name is Linda Williams, and this is Reality Skimming. And we're back with the concluding piece of Chapter 3, Admiral of a Single Ship. Harath brooded on his way down to the lawless district of the Underdogs, his black cloak drawn tight about him to conceal his good clothes. He was accosted a few times by peddlers offering food, sex, or drugs, but there was nothing they had that he desired. He wanted Vaughn. It hurt to know his boy did not reciprocate his feelings. It was always women with Vaughn. Harath had brought Anatolian to bed with them to help Vaughn feel more comfortable, but was Vaughn grateful? Never. Harath knew exactly how Vaughn felt about making love to men in general, and Harath in particular. Vaughn hated it. Harath had extracted these unwelcome facts from his dear boy with unwise demands for honesty, reducing them both to tears and Vaughn to life-threatening conscience bond attacks when Harath demanded better answers than he got. At least it was not all bad. Harath knew, for instance, that Vaughn could feel sorry for him. There was hope in pity. The rest was a matter of training and patience. But how could he keep nudging Vaughn along toward accepting him when he was so far away from court and Vaughn was being ruined by the other? Such thoughts tormented him as he hurried to the rendezvous Anatolia and Jarl had set up for him, clouding his anticipation of a few stolen hours alone with Vaughn. Jarl was waiting for him at a place called the Bear Pit, where the only bears were frescoes painted on the smoke-stained walls. The public room stank of ignis cigarettes and bad gin, but it was a smell Harath associated with excitement. It was here Harath had bought the ten-year-old Vaughn when the boy refused to pay for the loan of his ship with simple, willing affection. It was here Jarl had broken Vaughn's spirit sufficiently for Vaughn to beg Harath to take him back. Harath regretted Vaughn's suffering now, but consoled himself with the belief it could not have been too bad since there was not a mark on him to show for it. It was the middle of the artificial day on Gillian, and business was slow in the bear pit. Only half a dozen patrons occupied the dimly lit room, most of them looking hungover from the previous evening's excesses. Jarl was the only taker at the rail around a stage, penning a small boy, and it just paid an attendant for a bucket of pebbles. As Hareth watched, Jarl chucked the first stone at the lively boy who dodged. Jarl was aiming for the child's head. Harath jerked his captain of Errantry's elbow, spoiling his next throw. Stop it, Harath ordered. Jarl turned lazily, a smile sliding over a jagged tooth below a nose that had frequently been broken. Then he went back to rock throwing. His next throw clipped the boy on the ear. I never liked your brutal games, Harath said in a sulky tone. I never liked killing them. He'll live, Jarl said, unconcerned. He flicked his wrist, striking the boy in the ribs. The child yelped. Sit down and have a drink, Jarl told Harath. I'll be with you shortly. Harath bridled at Jarl's presumptions, including his use of grammatical peerage when he, Harath, 
was two birth ranks and one challenge class Jarl's superior, but he decided to let the insult go. Proper grammar, after all, might draw attention. He doubted many other patrons in the bear pit were senior lord and noblebornes, like Hareth was. Turning back to find a table, Hareth bumped into an old woman who seemed to be nearly blind. Pardon, my lord, she said, her groping hands connecting with the sword beneath his cloak. Oh, she added, as if deeply impressed. Hareth was afraid she had recognized him. What, what is it? he asked with alarm. She stared at him with filmed eyes, apparently overwhelmed. Oh, to find such a soul fallen so far. What are you prattling about? Hareth made to thrust her away from him, but something in her tone promised things he was hungry to know more about. You'll do me no harm, I know, she said, speaking up to him as if he was a royal blood. I'll go if you wish, of course, but you must believe my admiration is in earnest, your highness. Hareth stopped her leaving now. You had better explain yourself. Do you know me? In this life? No, but I have known you in a clear dream. Hareth's thick lips pouted out. He had been deceived more than once by liars who claimed to be able to recall experiences from past incarnations. Or at least that was Anatolia's opinion of the expenditures. He preferred to believe he attracted genuine clear dreamers. And why not? His mother had always told him they came from the best Blue Demish stock. Sit down, he said graciously so as not to eliminate in her mind the possibility he was a great prince, unjustly imprisoned in his current incarnation, for lack of better bodies being available. You have lost status through rebirth, she said gravely, still standing. Hareth fished out an honor chip. Tell me more. Ah, she said dropping into the seat to look at the bluish plastic triangle with its invisible single cell of authenticating blood. You say you are a clear dreamer, Hareth reminded her. One who remembers past lives. Have you seen me in one? Oh, yes, she said. Charles snatched up the honor chip, startling the old woman out of her seat, which he promptly filled himself. I can spare you the rest of it, he told Hareth. You will turn out to be the mistreated heir of the last Blue Demish pureblood, or something of that ilk. The clear dreamers slipped away in search of other customers. Hareth scowled. They're not all charlatans. I'll tell you when I find one of the genuine sort, Jarl promised, with no sign of spiritual conviction. What did Goldilocks want with you? It gave Hareth a fright when Jarl called Delm names, but it thrilled him too. He wished he could be as brazenly irreverent. Hareth told Jarl's everything about the mission and Anatolia, padding it out with a detailed account of his injured feelings. Killing reach, huh? Jarl summarized. Hareth fiddled with the glass of station gin he had ordered while they talked. The worst of it is, Vaughn will be glad I'm going far away from him. 
Hareth moaned. Charles sneered. Tell him to lie about it. Tell him to make out he's a broken-hearted whatever. It wouldn't be the same, Hareth protested. Besides, he might have one of those awful fits of bond conflict and die. I have to be ever so careful with him. Vaughn, Jaw said and spat on the floor. He gave me this splice in my ear eyebrow, sweet Vaughn. He brushed his face to indicate the scar. He did it defending some girl I was working on. Jarl grinned cruelly. He likes girls, you know. The Reth's ears heated. Don't. Jarl let it drop. Didn't you tell me Vaughn can speak English? Jarl said in his sly, planning tone of voice. And we know he can fly a rail ship. You met him because he wanted a ship to take his sister somewhere. Hareth was busy fantasizing about saving Vaughn from starvation after Delm ruined his career and how Vaughn would fall at his feet and thank him for his help. We'll take Vaughn with us to play Liege, Liege Monitum, declared Jarl. Hareth's fantasy disappeared. What? Vaughn, Jarl repeated impatiently. He's a better actor than you are. And from what you've said, we can't really leave him at court. If Delm's going to take a particular interest in him, who knows what he might find out about things like sla dens and conscience bonds. Yes, yes, Hareth patted his hands on the table in excitement. Exile would not be so bad with Vaughn beside him. He even has great eyes, Hareth enthused, and black hair. He'll make a perfect liege monitum. Jarl scowled. Just remember not to get stupid about him with the crew watching, or I'll remove the temptation, and you'll be back to playing monitum yourself and warming your own bed. We can't afford a scandal. Hareth shuddered. He knew Jarl would kill Vaughn if he got careless. He was that cruel. A cloaked figure stopped at their table. Jarl made as if to frighten off another clear dreamer, but stayed his hand. Oh, it's you, my lady, said Jarl, wielding the title as sarcastically as usual. Had a rough time rounding up the plaything for his lordship's pleasure. Anatolia's round, pretty face looked bloodless. You did bring him, didn't you? Harath greeted her eagerly, getting up. You did bring Vaughn. Yes, she said bleakly, and booked the room. I left him in it. Belatedly, Harath registered something was wrong. Vaughn's all right, isn't he? he asked. I don't know, said Anatolia in a bleak voice. I am not. Jarl got up pressed her into a seat and snapped his fingers at a waiter to order a stiff drink. Hareth fidgeted, looking past his stricken wife to the passage leading to rooms rented by the hour. The toy will keep, Jar told Hareth and pointed. Sit down. Hareth complied with a pout. Drink, Jarl told Anatolia. She swallowed once then put the glass away from her and began to cry. She never did it as attractively as Vaughn could. Her nose ran, 
His eyes just got shiny like a glaze of warmth over ice crystal and brimmed over in graceful tracks. Del told me to fetch Vaughn and wait at home for ballast. Anatolia gasped out between sobs. Jarl thrust a grubby napkin into her hands. She dropped it in her lap as if it was a dead mouse, but at least she stopped blubbering. Get on with it, Jarl ordered. Anatolia reached across the table to touch Hareth's hand. He flinched back. Vaughn, she said in a defeated voice, is kinder to me than you are, for less cause. She withdrew her hand, watching as it crept back to her lap to rest on the stained napkin like a wilted flower. Just tell us what happened, Jarl prompted. Anatolia did not look up again. Ballas came with palace errands. He told Vaughn to strip and lie down. They tied him to our bed so he couldn't help me just lie there. Then Ballas ordered me to... She paused to swallow and continued in a weak voice. Get a sperm sample. A wrath shot up, thinking about Ballas saying... Pretty, really. Pity, really. Such a beautiful and talented young man. And you did, Hareth exclaimed, in front of Ballas? I had no choice, Anatolia cried, making heads turn toward them. She sobbed once and covered her face with her hand. All went off to the royal Gorbelpool's satisfaction, I trust, said Jarl. Anatolia began to cry again, gently this time. Fawn told me, he said, to think of something else, but I couldn't think of anything but my humiliation with the servants whispering outside in the hall and Ballas there watching. She barked a harsh little laugh. Fawn was the only comfort I had, and I think he hated it as much as me, if that's possible for a man. I must comfort him, Hareth exclaimed, and sprang from the table like a child released from some onerous duty. Jarl's voice spiked through Anatolia's sobs. Twenty minutes, no more, understood? And remember, we've got a use for him. Don't wear him out. Chapter Four. Back to Anne. Anne meets beauty. Anne woke to eerie silence. The slugs embrace of her body felt cloying and her cockpit smelled sweet in a bad way. She wanted to throw off the feeling of smother smothering in her own exhalations and run, but space surrounded her, cold and fatal. She also felt a little lonelier than before. She'd fallen asleep listening to the sound of Renard's breathing and Return to silence. The transmission from Trinket Ring Station, Anne ordered. What happened to it? Words appeared on her cockpit's flat screen. Speech interface inoperable. Please use manual controls. Oh, fine, Anne cursed. Wonderful. Angrily, she bullied compliance out of her console to find the last clip. 
It began with a couple of human shapes entering Renard's dim room. Anne held her breath as they approached his helpless form on the bed, but they only wanted the mission box. One of them picked it up and carried it out to examine it. In the brighter light of the outer room, Anne saw one suffered from an eye infection, and both of them had dental problems. Perplexed, they probed the featureless mission box with instruments. The recording ended suddenly. Now what am I supposed to do, Anne wondered. The jump loomed at her back, but surely it was premature to run. Renard might wake up. Thomas could be sleeping off a drunk. She decided to stick it out. The wait was tolerable for the first few hours, but space slowly seeped into her mind around the edges of her resolve, urging her to flee its huge indifference. When she couldn't stand it any more, she hailed Trinket Ring on a standard Rishan channel. Thomas? Come in, damn you, you maladapted retrogressive! There was no response. She switched to a local frequency Thomas had told them about. Trinket Ring Station, this is Anne of Ryer. You have two Rishan citizens on board. Please respond. She was answered with a barked string of choppy consonants, relieved by too few vowels to round them out. Get me Thomas, she retaliated, or get me Renard. More meaningless words rattled back. They were not even speaking English, according to the best guess of her crippled onboard systems, which showed no signs of being able to repair themselves after the damage they had taken during the jump. Not that English would have helped Anne much. Their only surviving translation software had been in the vandalized mission box. What about this monotone person? Anne grasped at a chance to say something they might understand. The liege of monotone. She heard a couple of them shouting at each other in disagreement. Stupid retros, Anne muttered, feeling more confident. He didn't catch Rishans yelling and carrying on like bad children. Well, she admitted, except maybe pilots. Eventually, they did fetch Thomas. So, Yellowbuns, how you doing? he drawled. How do you think? she exploded at him. I'm itchy and hungry and going nuts. Not enjoying the view? Up yours, said Anne. That would be a start. Against her better judgment, Anne laughed. But then she was lonely enough to have welcomed a lecture from her least favorite counselor just now. Did I upset the Gilax calling down without warning? She asked contritely. Of course, but what doesn't? He paused to inhale. She envisioned wisps of the evil Gilak smoke drifting from his mouth. Good stuff they got this time, he remarked. They must have scored a deal with someone. In fact, this place is altogether well off enough to make a person nervous. Thomas? Anne began. He cut her off. Look, yellow buns, Renard will come around in his own time. Just sit tight and don't go freaking out the locals shouting things like, Monitum! He's one of their gods from Fountain Court. I've heard your anthropological theories, she told him. I don't think you're as qualified as Renard. Yeah, well, he's still what the locals call slack. I'm Klinaman. Stuff they claim is good for post-flight problems. 
but don't worry. When he wakes up, you'll be the first to know. He broke off. Wait, Thomas! But he was gone. Anne fumed. The enormity of her predicament reasserted itself. If things went sour on Trinket Ring, she didn't know which way to go to reach another station, even if a Gilak one would let her dock. And she was afraid to try the jump back on her own. She was busy running through her worst vocabulary on Thomas's behalf when she was hit with an outward shiver and a crazy inward gasp. A ship had dropped out of skim, very close, a big one. At least Anne assumed it was a ship, although her instruments insisted it was much too big. Pilots bound mass in transit by means of their grip. And while different pilots had different radii of influence, Anne had never heard of anyone who had the grip to bind something the size of a small space station. Even if such a super pilot did exist, the shimmer stresses on a rail-skimming object that large would snap it in half when it tried to skim. It seemed the new arrival was impossible on two fronts. It was also indifferent to Anne's credibility problem. Her instruments insisted it was as big as a space station, despite popping out of skim, exactly as if it had been a ship. And it showed no sign of being about to shatter. Instead, the newly arrived object lit up in the visual spectrum, showing itself to be a rotating, torus-shaped space station. The station, the station erupted in a fanfare of audio. Anne watched her flat stage in amazement as people in spacesuits popped out of hatches along the hull of the blazing, blaring station. They worked to stretch out and fasten great sheets of cloth, featuring a picture of a jeweled sword sprouting from the stem of a plump white rose. Anne couldn't have been more delighted if the Gilaks had arrived on horses, breathing vacuum. She was so utterly charmed, she laughed out loud and clapped her hands. Trinket Ring Station exchanged signals with the new skim-capable station that Anne spontaneously named the Rosen Sword. After the first rapid exchange in Gilak, there was silence. Then a new voice poured out of her console, the voice of a young man full of vowels, and sweetly modulated. Are you the Rishan envoy we're expecting? he asked. And we're at 20 minutes, so I'll stop there and continue with it on Tuesday. Wish me luck with keeping going on the twice-a-week front. All for now. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll see you next time on Reality Skimming.